Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Af Malhotra once again on Straight Talk with Af. Now, I always bring you some of the most incredible guests and the conversations, as you know, are organic. They're unscripted. It's uh, going with the flow. And we end up delving into so many important topics and issues that are related to uh, the, the book that the author has released or published. And, and today is no different. I have an extraordinary person with me today who is a doctor, a specialist in uh, gastroenterology, a thinker, of course, an author, and someone I think is good for humanity because she is doing her utmost to try and help us reconsider what we eat, how we eat, to ensure that we can prevent illnesses, uh, also immune conditions, chronic conditions, and inflammation in the body that we all know creates all sorts of problems uh, for us in, in, the, in the world we live in today, especially in sort of city life, the busyness of our life that uh, causes, as we know, oxidative stress that we've talked about on this show in the past. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the wonderful Shilpa Ravella. Shilpa, welcome to Straight Talk with Ash. How are you? Uh, thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I'd like to congratulate you on your wonderful book, which I must add, uh, this is a very important, very important piece of information. I discovered Shilpa because my 80-year-old mother, who is an avid reader, uh, went on to, she was reading the Times or the Guardian in the UK, and she saw a review of a book and the title of the review was The Hidden Cause of Modern Disease. And uh, she uh, tagged, she ripped the, 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 the article out. This is it, by the way, just so you have evidence. That's, that's you, Shilpa, right there. <laughs> and she said, you must interview uh, this wonderful author on your show because she's written a book called A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and disease. So that's how we got to discover you. And I'm grateful for my mother for doing so. She's finished a book and loved it, by the way. Thank and you. today's an opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. Today, I should be so happy that I got you on the show. Today's an opportunity for us to talk about this book. Uh, and we're going to unpack that in a moment. Before we do so, uh, I know that you are, of course, have been studying and uh, an assistant professor at uh, Columbia University Medical Center. And um, I, I don't know, and I want to ask you this, um, what triggered you to write this book for our, for, our, you know, for our audience, for our straight talkers out there? So tell us a little bit about who is Shilpa first? What, what is your background? And then eventually, um, let's get to how you, you, um, you wrote this, what compelled you to write this book, and why now? Sure. Well, I'm a gastroenterologist by training. And uh, I have all kinds of patients coming into my clinic. And when people think of gastroenterologists, they usually think of distressing things like colonoscopies. Uh, but gastroenterology is a field that encompasses so much more and actually a variety of chronic inflammatory disorders. So patients with diseases like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, food sensitivities, all of these patients have so many questions about inflammation how to prevent inflammation, how to treat it, how to address it in their own lives. And for seven years, I also had the opportunity to take care of patients who had undergone intestinal transplantations. And mm. this is a small field, an organ transplant, but it's a very interesting field because when you are transplanting the intestines, you are also transplanting all of those germs in the gut. 
And so your immune system is going to be very angry about all of that and make sure there's lots of inflammation going on. So on the clinical side, I was very interested in inflammation for a long time. And on the right. personal side as well, I, I had a very close friend of mine who was diagnosed with a devastating and debilitating autoimmune disorder. So those, those two things, uh, my patients and the personal side as well, uh, compelled me to really think about inflammation more and actually became quite obsessed with it in some ways and compelled me to write the book. Yeah, fabulous. And um, you talked about your friends and, you know, without going into too much detail, I can relate to, I can relate to um, what, what happens to one's body when inflammation sets in and attacks you. And uh, I have been a patient of an autoimmune condition for a number of years. Many of the <clears throat> folks on the, on the show know this. And, you know, it's really tough because when it first strikes, you don't really know what's going on. And, um, you know, I, f the first time I got diagnosed with my autoimmune condition was when I was uh, 19 or 20. That was 24, year, 24 years ago. I'm giving my age away. And uh, there's been quite a lot of advancement to a large degree, but still autoimmune conditions, many of them are very hard to A, diagnose, be treat actually uh, in a in a very sort of uh, specific and um, you know effective way. There are a lot of sort of drugs that are used that do a lot of different things, and uh, they have their you know their side effects as well. And um, you tend to then sometimes sit back and reflect and try and figure out what happened and how you ended up getting a particular chronic condition or an auto acute condition. And uh, what was it? Was it, you know, your lifestyle? Was it, you know, destiny? Was it your karma? Mm -hmm. uh, was it uh, all of those things? Was it, uh, the, you know, when you were young, did you consume too much alcohol and smoke too many cigarettes? You know, what, what was it? And I've certainly been reflecting on it for over two decades and touch wood, I'm, I'm better now. Uh, but you talk about all of all aspects of inflammation in your book. And I, what, what worries me is that there is more and more, and you're the expert, of course, so I'm going to ask you these questions, but it feels as if more and more of us globally, not just in the, the, the US, not just in Europe or not just in Asia, many more of us seem to be uh, suffering uh, from inflammation and autoimmune related diseases. Some of it could be, well, we didn't know it was autoimmune 25 years ago, now we do, uh, but there also appears to be a rise but you're the expert. So firstly, um, I hear you and um, tell us a little bit about what, what was the compelling sort of um, thesis in the book and, uh, you know, to what extent did market factors or trends that you were seeing and observing around perhaps either a rise or some sort of a, a um, an observation of, of how autoimmune conditions or chronic diseases are on the rise, uh, you know, got you to to dig deeper into this book and got you committed to writing this book? Well, you're absolutely correct that autoimmune disorders are certainly on the rise. And when you think of autoimmune disorders, it's a combination of factors. So it's your genes, it's the environment, all of these different things in your life coalescing to create disease. But autoimmune right. disorders in the past few decades have have been on the rise and our genes are likely not changing that quickly. So we do know that there are compelling environmental factors that are involved in the causation of autoimmune disorders. 
And when you think of inflammation as an entity onto itself, you know, we have this robust immune response that we evolved to fight things like pathogens, poisons, and traumas. It's supposed to be protecting our body. It's supposed to be a benevolent force. And the biological price of inflammation is autoimmunity when, you're, when, when the inflammation turns against your own body. And what we're learning today is that this biological price of inflammation is actually even more pervasive than we've ever imagined because low-level inflammation is tied to not only an increased risk of autoimmune disorders, but also many of our modern chronic killers like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, neurodegenerative disorders, and even some psychiatric disorders. So this type mm -hmm. of low-level inflammation is is very, very common. And today I would say the majority of us in Western nations are inflamed. Mm -hmm. And I and it's interesting, I'm gonna pick up the last word, Western nations. And so this has always fascinated me. And I've had a few very cool guests on the show who've discussed the different dimensions of well-being um, related to right the way from the gut to you talk about inflammation, the autoimmune system and so on. Uh, to even, you know, um, Ayurveda. And um, let's go to the East for a moment. And I do know you have an, an Indian origin. So we must discuss this because, yes. um, you know, one has to, and I remember discussing it with one of my, one of my guests on the shows. He, yeah, on the show, he kept talking about the food, the Western food chain and with the food chain that we have in this part of the world versus, versus what the East has. So, Tell us a little bit, tell me a little bit about the observations here. Now, is this a problem of the West created by the West? Will it be solved by the West? Or do we have to look outside of the West to solve this problem? Well, I think in general, we do have to go back to traditional practices all over the globe. And, and in particular, you're correct, you know, Eastern medicine and indigenous practices, all of those practices uh, we we do have the scientific backing for many of those practices now from the types of foods that we need to be eating to how we live our lives from uh, prioritizing social connections to just exercising more, weaving exercise more seamlessly into our days. And I did feel as I was writing this book that I was kind of going backwards in, in some ways, talking to my parents about how they grew up. And as I talked to them about how they grew up, because they uh, uh, both grew up on farms in uh, South India. And it, it was just incredibly compelling listening to those stories and, and then doing the research and, and seeing how the science we have today really does support some of those practices from uh, their childhood. Mm. Mm. And, you know, if you think about the Eastern diet, because it varies right from the north to the south of a place like India, for example, but if you look at the ancient, some of the ancient medical or the, the ancient medicine, which Ayurveda is one form and there are many, many other forms as well. Um, I recall, you know, like nightshades, for example, um, you know, aubergine or tomato and, and so on and so forth. These sorts of um, vegetables were no-nos even in Ayurvedic food, the use of haldi or turmeric with pepper. Um, not without pepper, with pepper, uh, the use of how certain spices and herbs and we call them masalas, for example, are blended together in a dish. Uh, it's not just the hot curry on the high street Indian restaurant, yes. the food that we eat at home, you know, whether it's lentils or as we call it, dal or vegetables and various other things that we mesh together, almost the, the place of foods that you see 
um, has many things. It's got some dal, it's got some lentils, it's got some vegetables, maybe a tiny bit of rice, maybe some pickle, uh, some fermentation going on there, and a variety of some sweet, but a certain type of sweet depending on the climate, depending on the season, and so on. Very seasonal food that, for some reason, even people who are allergic to wheat or gluten and various other things, I always even dairy. I mean, I remember visiting uh, Amritsar in Punjab. Uh, recently, and I don't take dairy. And I went and there's something called a lassi, which is a uh, a, a milk-based drink. And I was like, well, I'm not, my wife was with me. I was like, I'm not going to touch this. And neither was she. But the, the chap it was felt really bad. The, the chap, he was guy, the guide said, you must have one. You must have one of these. So I, I knocked it back and I thought, right, good luck. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. And I was totally fine. And so we know that the food chain our supply chain, the way we are um, producing, uh, the way we are refining uh, the use of chemicals, fertilizers, this is a systemic, deep-rooted problem. And, I, and I, I know you know about this. So tell me what your views are on this, because if I think about root causes outside of lifestyle and stress and so on, uh, you have to have optionality to be able to buy product and food that is good quality. And I sometimes worry about this. So to give us some hope because the if the food chain is distorted and corrupted then what choice do we have i mean what is your diet for example or what do you advise people to eat in 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 the western world i think it's absolutely true that how food is prepared how food is grown how food is consumed even who are you eating with are you eating your food rushed and stressed or are you eating it socially with other folks are you eating it in a way that's mindful all of these things play a part in health. And I think it's, it's, it's tough because today uh, the farming practices, uh, agricultural practices in the States and in the Western world have altered so drastically. And we know that soil, uh, the nutrients in the soil, very, very mm. important for the nutrient quality of our food. So when we go to the grocery store today, d- despite all of this, we can make certain choices that help us to choose the most nutritious food. One of the biggest things for inflammation is really choosing a variety of whole plant foods, a diverse variety of whole plant foods, and a high quantity of whole plant foods. And I think it's less about the label of your diet. We have all kinds of labels for our diets from uh, vegan to paleo, low carb, low fat, keto, all of these different labels. And I think no matter what you label your diet, you can actually tailor it into something pretty nutritious. You can be a vegan who has potato chips and french fries every day, and, and that's not such a healthy diet. But really, uh, those labels don't tell us the important things. How is this food grown? How is it prepared? And right. when you look at preparation techniques like fermentation, for example, which is a very common technique in South India where it is very hot mm-hmm. and you needed to preserve these foods. And I'm sure you've heard of uh, dosas and idlis and all of those yeah. fermented foods. And those foods have very different reactions in your body. They're bringing in probiotics into your body. And even if the bacteria don't hang out in your gut, they actually are having conversations with your immune cells and they are influencing your body in countless ways, even if they don't colonize your gut. So so fermented foods, Mm -hmm. other food preparation techniques, trying to minimally process your foods, all of these things are very important. And we see, for example, that patients with celiac disease Uh, who Mm. can't tolerate wheat products in the States, but then they go to Europe and they have an ancient sourdough bread uh, baked in the ancient tradition. And all of a sudden they're actually okay with 
with their symptoms. And some of these fermented foods uh, that you that, that you will see and that you can create at home actually have less gluten than the foods labeled mm. gluten-free in the grocery stores. And those foods mm. are actually more inflammatory in some ways. So absolutely, all of these things do matter, how the food is is grown uh, and how it's prepared. And you need so much more than just a dietary label to tell you how to choose your food. We, we do know from studies that simply increasing the diversity of plants in your diet can calm inflammation, right. even if you don't change the quantity. So just picking a huge array of different foods is important as well. Wow, okay. And uh, just for those who haven't experienced what you have or I have firsthand, I mean, you're, of course, the intellectual, you're studying this domain, you're a doctor. Um, just to sort of boil it down to something a little bit more simple, what what is inflammation in the body? How, how, do you, how would you describe that? Uh, and feel free to you know, speak in medical language as well. You don't have to dumb it, dumb it down. Sure, no problem. So inflammation yeah. is an ancient force and it evolved to protect us against germs, poisons, and traumas. And the four cardinal signs of inflammation, for example, if you slam your knee against a table, you can see this, you'll see redness, heat, swelling, and pain. And those are a manifestation of what's going on inside the body on a microscopic level. Blood flow increases, blood vessels dilate, fluid and protein leak out of the vessels, putting painful pressure on the nerve endings. So that's inflammation in, in a nutshell. And that's acute inflammation from trauma or the things you tend to see day to day. And the hidden inflammation is a type of inflammation that you don't see. It's inflammation that weaves through your body and, and you may not even know that it's there. Mm. Mm. And, you know, we look at um, autoimmune conditions, just going to the next one. What, what is an autoimmune condition? What, what happens? In an autoimmune condition, your immune system reacts against your own tissues. So when you think of patients with, say, inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis, mm -hmm. your immune system has an overreaction to tissues, damages tissues, so patients with inflammatory bowel disease tend to have various gastrointestinal symptoms like bloody diarrhea and stomach pains mm. and chronic inflammation in their intestines. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, tend to have joint pains. So this is chronic inflammation from your body's reaction to its own tissues. Mm. And do you tend to see, is there, are there any studies or observations right now around, you know, uh, does it start at a younger age? Does it happen later on in life do some people say well I was fine all my life I've never had any issues never been to the doctor and so on and so forth and suddenly I've got this autoimmune condition I eat really well I eat vegetables I'm vegetarian for example I don't drink any alcohol but yet I have this autoimmune condition so what are what are the factors that you see that are the variables that are more conclusive whether they're correlators or uh, the you know uh, form of causation well, certainly an autoimmune disorder can, can strike at any age. Uh, it's, it's also disease dependent. Certain diseases have different distributions. We know, for example, that inflammatory bowel disease, we, we tend to think of it as a disorder that's picked up relatively early, 20s, mm. 30s. But we also know that older folks can also be diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. Same thing with celiac disease. So we know mm. that we, we can be diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder even later on in our age. And mm -hmm. we do know that autoimmune diseases are on the rise and that there are environmental factors involved in the causation. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, the, the alcoholic drink you had last night is definitively a cause for 
the autoimmune disorder you get in a few days. Uh, but it's to say that these environmental factors are really altering how our immune system behaves. And we've evolved robust immune responses for the right reasons, but our immune system is just exquisitely sensitive to the triggers in this new world. So everything from the food you eat to the stress levels in your life, and stress comes in so many different formats today, from uh, bullying at work to uh, loneliness, post-pandemic loneliness is a huge problem. You know, so chronic stress is also a, a very, very big problem in this country. And so all of these triggers can certainly play a part in the causation of disease and in causing hidden inflammation. And we know that hidden inflammation, folks who have silent inflammation are more likely to mount autoimmune disorders, are more likely to have heart disease, cancer, all of these other diseases that we've talked about, which we can think of now as chronic inflammatory disorders. And we know, for mm. example, when, when you smoke, sm uh, smokers are indeed at a higher risk of getting uh, diseases like arthritis, for example, or heart disease. So, so, so we do know that uh, there are so many factors involved in the causation of autoimmune disorders. Mm -hmm. Understood. Now, um, you know, we're running out of time, but there are a few more questions. One is about um, the, this area of um, heart disease and or should I start first start with cancer? Because of course it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a terrible disease and, uh, the uh, statistics around how many people are going to get it. I mean, I read just recently one in two will end up getting cancer. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's troublesome and, and really distressing to hear this. Um, the manifestation of these, um, these illnesses or these inflammatory markers that go, go crazy, inflammation that goes crazy, you know, turns into different sorts of conditions, right? I've talked about some that I have had, but you've talked about the ones that your friend had and so on and so forth. Tell us a little bit about your research in cancer. Have you discovered anything that you wanted to share with us that, um, you know, has intrigued you or bothering you moving forward in further research? Sure. Well, we know that the yeah. immune system tends to fight tumors as it would germs. So the immune system is trying to actually protect you from cancer. But we also know that paradoxically, when we see tissues in the body that have chronic inflammation, these areas of chronic inflammation are more prone to developing cancers. So if you have chronic inflammation in the colon, for example, with a disease like inflammatory bowel disease, you are more mm. likely to get cancer in those areas. And this isn't true 100% of every single tissue in your body, because there are some areas that, like the joints and the brain, where you might have chronic inflammation, yet have very little increased risk of cancer. But this is true for many, many different tissues. So inflammation can come before cancer and be involved in the causation of cancer. And this is true for overt inflammation that we are used to diagnosing and seeing and testing for. And this is also seemingly true of hidden inflammation, the hidden iteration that sort of just floats through our blood uh, before the diagnosis of a cancer. And we also do know that inflammation is very important in the tumor microenvironment. So after you have a cancer, inflammation is a critical part of that environment. And inflammation actually helps to drive uh, the metastasis of cancer. And it helps in every mm -hmm. stage from the birth of the cancer, from the initial uh, genetic and epigenetic mutations to the continued growth and spread of the cancer throughout the body. So inflammation mm -hmm. is a huge player in all of that. 
Mm. And a controversial question about um, non-vegetarian or meat or poultry-based or fish-based diets versus you know, plant-based vegetarian diets. Of course, this discussion and debate is ongoing, right? And depending on who you want to have the discussion with. What is your general take here? Um, again, this is you know, a generalist view on if you want to have a better life, be more uh, fit and well and live inflammation not free, but you know, lower the chances of you having inflammation. What sort of a diet are you really recommending? You know, if you could spell that out clearly. So we also then dispel the myths on all sorts of keto and paleo and this and that diet. So what's your what's your take on it? Sure. And to preface that, I would say when we are talking about a diet for for human health, and we are looking at it in the context of inflammation, in the context of all of these disorders now being labeled as chronic inflammatory disorders. So heart mm. disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, neurodegenerative mm. disorders, uh, and autoimmune disorders as well. When we are looking at it in that broad context, we know that the anti-inflammatory diet uh, it is a population health diet, it's a population-wide diet, and it's a whole foods, plant-based diet. And that type of diet means that you are minimally processing your foods. You're not deep frying them. You're not eating the processed and packaged foods with tons of additives, but your diet, mm. the majority of your diet consists of minimally processed whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds, avocados, um, and even, even all of those nightshade vegetables and uh, whole grains that typically tend to be avoided in some iterations of anti-inflammatory diets, when you look at this from a population-wide standpoint, those are foods that are actually highly anti-inflammatory. And we have randomized controlled trials showing this when you have whole grains and, and uh, beans. You know, these, are, these are foods that decrease markers of inflammation in the body. And, and so from a population-wide standpoint, that is the sort of diet we should be following. And I would push the needle a little bit because when we say majority, we think of 51%. But when we're mm -hmm. thinking based on the epidemiology, have to date and based on planetary health as well. When we're thinking about how to feed ourselves, we really do need to push that needle towards 90%, 95%, even 100%. Right. And, yeah. and that's where we need to be. Uh, when we look at how we should be eating in order to preserve the planet, we have a plate comprised of mostly whole foods and you know very, very small, small portions of animal products. Mm. Uh, a serving mm. of uh, lean meat is the size of a deck of cards. So if you have a couple of servings a week, that is consistent right. with planetary health. But uh, most people probably will have a few servings in their in their um, meat. So so when we think about human and planetary health, we really do need to be eating a minimally processed whole foods plant based diet. And of course, there will be exceptions to this with folks with certain conditions. I certainly. I have seen patients, you know, I have a population of patients with mm. short guts uh, that I took care of for quite some time and they were missing most of their intestines. And, and it was very hard for some of them to, to have a diet that high in plant foods. And uh, mm. so we did need concentrated animal products in their diet. And there are subsets of autoimmune disorders as well, where folks might find some relief with iterations of anti-inflammatory diets, but for the population as a whole, this is the sort mm. of diet we should be following. Got it. Great. That's that's great input. And what's your view on supplements? Uh, because, of course, that comes up a lot when people feel they are deficient in some way. Um, what's your general research telling you around the use of supplements to aid what you've described? 
Well, there's so much marketing around this today and you know, particularly with probiotic supplements as well. Yeah. And typically, for example, with probiotic supplements, I tend to prescribe them in disease rather than in health and go with the evidence. We have evidence-based conditions for which we prescribe probiotics, uh, for example, mm. things like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, maybe antibiotic associated diarrhea. But mm. when we look at the wellness industry as a whole, when we see the exponential rise of these supplements and the marketing and the way that they are mm. pushed to consumers uh, as a cure-all for everything, mm. I actually think that, again, we need to look back to our ancestors, to ancestral times, to traditional times, and realize that the anti-inflammatory diet is really, it's a frugal diet. It's, it's a diet that doesn't require you know, fancy supplements uh, and, and all of these things, uh, like microbiome testing is very big right now. So I think we do need to go with what the evidence shows. And of course, if you have a diet that's high in plant foods, you do want to take things like a, maybe a B12 supplement. Um, some folks take a fish oil supplement. And you know there are times when folks will bring up, well, if I have to take a supplement when I'm eating plant foods, then why not just eat a Western diet? But in a Western diet, you have many more nutritional deficiencies uh, than you would with a whole foods plant-based diet. And many, many other issues that uh, we are just not addressing. So, so having to take mm. a couple of supplements, if you were on a 100% or 90% whole foods plant-based diet is actually not, not too bad of a thing. And it speaks to more how our environment has evolved, because that's one of the things that we have to realize is that we, we are new humans and we are living in an environment now where we can't just say, let's eat only what our ancestors ate, because we are facing multiple ecological threats in our new environment, climate change, epidemics, right. pandemics. And we are facing the potential of modern medicine to give us so much from mm -hmm. uh, multiple organ transplants to prosthetic joints, to immunotherapy. And all of this is, is going to be affected by your diet. So our current environment is unlike any other environment that mm. we've seen previously. So we really more so than ever need to respect the language of the immune system. Mm. Have you discovered any um, uh, any sort of differences in the um, racial makeup of patients related to um, you know your findings? For example, people who come from ethnic backgrounds versus those who are Caucasian, those who come from um, African backgrounds and stuff. Because you know, I guess the genetic makeup is a little bit different. I, uh, you know, environmental factors sometimes uh, are, are different. Uh, therefore, it's not a you know one size fits all, and so even when you look at South India is a great example. It's actually a vegan diet. If you look at dosas, and if you look at Italy's dosas, you look at even the the lunch or the dinner on this and the South side, it's very it's actually vegan to a large extent. You know, um, and chicken and animal products were introduced a little bit later for a variety of reasons. But have you seen, have you, have you picked up anything in your research that says, well, actually, yeah. Um, or are you, I guess I'm assuming that the, the, the whole sort of um, grain uh, plant-based diet that you're discussing and, and, you know, talking about is relevant to all, regardless of our uh, ethnic makeup or background and, and, and so on and so forth. I think, again, it really depends on the individual, uh, right. but I think it's it's more, this is the kind of diet that is best for the population at large. And when we speak of uh, tolerances that are tied to genetic makeups, we can think of something like lactose intolerance, for example. Right. 
And I have a lot of Asian patients who come into my clinics uh, who who end up at some point in their lives lactose intolerant. And these foods also were not a traditional portion of their culture. So these are foods that they haven't been consuming for very long. And so after childhood, lactose intolerance tends to develop uh, in so many of these patients. And again, I I think uh, it's hard to talk about a one size diet that fits all for every single individual in the entire planet. But Mm. I think when we talk about the kind of diet that is going to be absolutely incredible for helping to prevent disease, helping to treat diseases as well, for the majority of the chronic conditions that we have today, because a lot of these conditions are lifestyle conditions when you think about heart disease and cancer and a lot of the incidences that we are seeing now are are Mm -hmm. environmental. And that's not to place the blame on any individual as well, because there are structural issues at play and so many other issues that we need to consider. But a lot of a lot of these issues are due to our current environment. And and this type of diet, the the plant based, minimally processed diet is at large uh, a diet that is best for the whole population. And we have studies to back this up as well. Gosh, right. And last two questions. The first one is about the next generation. And uh, you talked about COVID and you talked about loneliness and how people, that's a form of stress, of course, and depression and various other conditions that have uh, stemmed from there. And uh, many of those people who are lonely also, not all of them, many of them happen to be sometimes without families or single or living alone and so on. And uh, some of them are younger, you know, they're the Gen Z population, for example, we saw that during remote working, you know, uh, environments where those were the communities that were most affected by not coming into the office physically, uh, as opposed to those who've got families or kids running around all day, you know, so they, they, found, they found a different way of managing and coping. Uh, given they may have more stress, uh, given given that's the backdrop, therefore they're more prone to, to some extent, some of these conditions, let's let's just say for a moment, it feels as if their level of awareness of some of these dietary uh, habits is greater than at least gener- my generation and earlier, where we have very, very limited levels of knowledge. It's only now that we're starting to open our eyes and minds to this stuff. How do you feel about the next few generations as a doctor and as an author? with your research what does it make you feel i'm very hopeful uh i i mean i'm optimistic in general so i try to be hopeful but i think when you look at prescribing lifestyle medicine in clinical practice when you look at something like that i feel like there is so much more interest now than there was 20 years ago when i was in medical school so i think the younger folks the younger population folks who are training folks in medical school right now and the trainees there are so many more folks who are interested now than there ever were before. And I think all of these pressing issues have coalesced to create even more interest because the advent of a global pandemic in 2020, that was a wake-up call. You know, the idea that climate change is not just on the horizon, but it's actually here and it's happening to us in the moment. And that what we prescribe in the clinics and what we are doing at our dinner tables in our homes all of this is so interconnected, just as the gut germs are so interconnected with our own health. And so all of this is, is something that I think folks who are younger are realizing more and more. And there is a push for more uh, nutrition education to get into medical schools. 
And I think that it's going in the right direction. Beautiful. That's really good to know. And my last question really is, I always ask authors this question. <clears throat> there is a time lag between when you publish your book and it you know, goes to the publishers and it's released on Amazon or wherever it is. And then uh, between that time and say now, uh, interviews happen, there's time for reflection, you read more books, you have more ideas, you reflect on what you've done and so on. And uh, it sort of triggers you to think about what else you would have added to the book if someone gave you an opportunity to open it up again. And let's say there was, you know, I always think why are books static? Like they should be like, they should be constantly updated using some AI. So I should just subscribe to this book, but I subscribe to all of your next books. So the auto update hits me on Kindle or whatever it may be. I just can't, I can't believe we don't have that today. It's so simple but it should because you're right six months later, why do you have to write another book? You'd be like, no, I need to write another chapter. <laughs> Just the chapter in itself can change the entire dynamic and dimension of the book. So have you been through that yet? Have you been thinking about, oh my God, I've got to, should be talking about this. That's a good point. I need to be working on this. And are you thinking about your next book therefore? I mean, I would love to add an update even right now. And I think, you know, there is just so much that is changing so much that is growing in this field. And and I update it on my blog sometimes, but you know, right. I think since I've written the book, I've just seen even more so how pervasive inflammation is for one, and mm -hmm. uh, even talking about uh, loneliness and how loneliness affects the body. Loneliness is a huge stressor, and I did a bit of a deep dive in a piece on loneliness and how it actually incites our immune cells to become more angry and how it is tied to low-level inflammation. And I uh, learned a lot of new things there as well. And so that's one thing, just seeing how pervasive inflammation has become. Uh, and then also just thinking more about testing. How can we catch inflammation? You know, I think that is something I would love to expand upon in the future, because that's sort of a nebulous gray area at the present. So many of the markers that we have are not necessarily very specific. If you have a cold or a flu, you tend to have markers of inflammation, and we're not sure where it's coming from? Is it from the cold and flu? Is it from a chronic disease? And I think really getting to adequate testing methods can be very important. And just seeing how researchers are thinking about perhaps inflammatory uh, testing for inflammation in the context of inflammatory challenges, maybe, or signatures of inflammatory markers or using imaging techniques. I think mm -hmm. all of that has been very fascinating. And mm -hmm. I've also thought a bit in some of these interviews that have come up, I've thought a bit about uh, Eastern and indigenous medicine and ancient right. practices as you brought up and just going back to how we can reconcile Western medicine with the idea that there, there is so much scientific support for some of those practices now. And I don't think it's an all or nothing. You embrace every single thing that you hear about in Ayurveda or you reject all of it. I think it really is dependent on the individual patient for one. And, you know, it's, it's possible to incorporate the evidence-based portions, the diet, the, the uh, social advice, the advice on stress, the advice on exercise, uh, the advice on so many of these things that we do have rigorous scientific support for. And uh, yoga as well, actually is a big, is a big piece of this. And and then, and then to look at each patient on an individual level and, and to say, mm -hmm. hey, well, as long as you are still continuing with your medical treatment, and if there is a practice that happens to make you feel better and we don't have rigorous evidence for this practice, I think it's important to look at the patient in an individual context 
support any disorder. So, so I think that mm. blending of some of these indigenous and Eastern practices in the context of Western medicine, you know, how can we actually best serve patients by doing that? And it, this also goes back to realizing that it is such a shock that there is a deep biological link between diseases as distinct as heart disease and cancer and depression and Alzheimer's. And, and that should really compel us to think we need to be treating folks, not just in a piecemeal fashion, which we still need to do, but also as a whole body, whole mind. Uh, and we need to actually be looking at root causes and we need to be prescribing lifestyle as an adjunctive treatment, just as we would be prescribing drugs in the clinics. Mm -hmm. Spot on. That is um, so. Ha I'm so happy to hear that you're thinking in the way you are because that work is needed desperately. Um, all of those, all of those strands that you've picked up, and uh, you, the book got released in October 2022 in the states. We could in London. We only managed to get hold of your book in January this year. So it's been actually quite a short period of time. It's not even been a year, really, uh, and. Right. You know, um, I congratulate you on the fact that you've already not only that you've produced a fantastic book at the right time, and it's so well written, so gripping and um, congratulations for doing that, but also your ability to articulate so wonderfully something that could be um, seen as being quite complex for some, um, but also some who have the condition might run a million miles away think oh my god not this again you know fine I'm just dealing with it and so you know kudos to you for doing that and of course the fact that now you're thinking about the next few issues that you want to tackle ideally even in chapters as opposed to even the next book I'd love AI to do that for us I didn't talk about AI but when I bring you on to the show um, next time I will discuss artificial intelligence and how that can play such a huge role in early diagnosis. You talked about that, you know, in terms of the triggers, mm -hmm. use of scanning systems or x-rays and various other tests that we can put into place. Preventative medicine, in other words, is so important as much as personalized med medicine is important. So both of those Ps are super important. Um, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show. I know you've got a super busy, um, you know, schedule, really, Honored to have you on the show. I wish you all the best. God bless the work you're doing. Thank you for being a great doctor and, and curing people and also thinking about other ways of treating um, us holistically. And for that, uh, I'm deeply grateful. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, before I go, any reactions? How did you find the last 45 minutes, 50 minutes or an hour? Uh, I know you do many podcasts and so on, but I'd love some feedback. I think this was wonderful. I loved the improv uh, uh, session and I think it was a very natural, wonderful conversation. And thank you for asking such thoughtful questions and thank you for having me on your show. It was, it was a pleasure and it was an honor as well. Yeah, thank you, Shobha. Thank you so much. Been amazing. Uh, for the straight talkers out there, you must watch this again and again because you need time to digest what's been said. Click on the bottom right to subscribe and um, may the force be with you keep smiling keep safe don't be lonely if you can help it and go change your diet and eat well um and uh, you know save a life as it should be uh, shopper thank you be well take care and i'll look forward to seeing all of you again on the next show thank you